This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Thank you very much for uh, all the work you have done over the years to bring these new ideas to open-minded audiences, very special audiences. From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions, through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm, mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now. As together with you, the active deep listener, we evoke and engage in living dialogues. Welcome to Living Dialogues. I'm your host, Duncan Campbell. And with me for this particular dialogue, I'm truly delighted to have my great friend and colleague, Stanislav Grof, MD, known to many of you for his numerous books and his over 50 years of research into consciousness, beginning with his own uh, initial experience as a trained psychiatrist in his native Czechoslovakia before coming to the United States in the mid-60s and uh, having conducted his research all over the world since then. He's based in the Bay Area, and he taught for many years at the Esalen Institute as a resident faculty. Uh, he and his wife, Christina, have created uh, both the holotropic breathwork known to many of you, and also spiritual emergency programs, also known to many of you. One of the things that uh, I think we're going to talk about today will include reference to certain of his books, and that is this notion of 2012 Now, Empowering the Transformation, which is the subject matter of this particular dialogue. It's part of a pilgrimage of dialogues, you might say, on the road to 2012 now, a conference gathering taking place in Fort Collins, Colorado, May 29 and 30 of 2009, of which myself as Master of Ceremonies and presenter will be joined by Stan and other colleagues such as Rick Tarnas, author of Cosmos and Psyche, Sabanfu Some, uh, William Henry, John Major Jenkins, Robert Sittler, Christine Page. We have already had three of these on-the-road dialogues, myself with Robert Sittler, and then with John Major Jenkins, and then with Saban Fusome. So here we might uh, say we're entering the fourth step on the pilgrimage, uh, the sharing of stories road toward this particular event, May 29 and 30 in Fort Collins, Colorado. And a number of the books that Stan has written really have bearing on this. Uh, just as we begin here, I might mention four of his books, Psychology of the Future, The Cosmic Game, When the Impossible Happens, put out by Sounds True, one of the co-sponsors of this conference, and The Ultimate Journey, dealing with death, rebirth, shamanism, and other related topics. So, Stan, what a real delight and privilege it is, and fun to have you back here on Living Dialogues in this new context. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure, as always, to 
get involved in the dialogue with you. We've had so many really great ones over the years, and one of the things that uh, I think I'm really looking forward to here is uh, taking on this topic of 2012 now. As we know, this event that is to happen of galactic alignment on December 21, 2012, as can be seen from examining the heavens and as was predicted in its own way by the Mayan cosmologists uh, over 2,000 years ago, has captured the public imagination. We've mentioned that there is a film in process that is due out for release December 2009 that will be interpreting the apocalyptic nature of this in an extremely negative and erroneous way. Um, thinking that the apocalypse means uh, destruction, death, termination, uh, a fear-based kind of titillation for the massed audience, as opposed to the true meaning of apocalypse, uh, as uh, revealed, we might say, in its own etymology, the origin of the word and the meaning of the word. Apocalypse in Greek is the unveiling or the revelation or a revelation of a deeper reality. And as you know, Stan, from your work in the last 50 years, you have been a primary participant as founder of the transpersonal psychology movement uh, and uh, that with Abraham Maslow and others uh, of the unveiling of new modes of understanding of the human consciousness, what were at many times in the 20th century thought to be simply psychopathology uh, or states of mind that were thought to be exhibiting illness rather than clarity have now been revealed to be uh, states of awareness that are multidimensional and beyond what we might say are ordinary awarenesses. So with that background, I'd just like to ask you if you might share as we begin here, just spontaneously looking back on your own childhood, was there an event now that comes to your mind in association with what we're experiencing with this uh, focus on 2012, something that just suddenly springs to mind uh, as a free association, as it were. You know, uh, I think I'm a very unusual uh, individual in that um, I was brought to, to mysticism and spirituality through um, scientific work, through laboratory and clinical work. Uh, I came from a family uh, where there was no, uh, uh, you know, religious uh, indoctrination. Actually, at the uh, at the wedding of my uh, parents, there was a major confrontation uh, with the church, who initially uh, refused to marry them because my mother was from a strictly Catholic family. My uh, father was a pagan by their definition. The family had no church affiliation, and the uh, local church in a very small Czech city refused to, to marry them, and uh, so it seemed like it would actually interfere with the, with the marriage until my grandparents made a major contribution, a financial contribution, and the church released its rules and married a pagan, <laughs> and uh, my parents were so disgusted by what happened that they uh -huh. didn't want to commit me or my brother to any religion, mm -hmm. and so for me it wasn't actually until... 1956, where uh, as a beginning psychiatrist, I volunteered for for an LSD session, the psychiatric department. When I where I was uh, working, uh, received a supply of this new substance uh, from Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company, where it was developed, and they said, you know, this was a very very amazing uh, substance. Uh, 
from the from uh, the group of uh, ergot uh, alkaloids and the powerful psychedelic effects were discovered by Dr. Hoffman, basically by accident, where he intoxicated himself when he was synthesizing it. And then uh, the son of uh, Dr. Hoffman's boss, who was a psychiatrist in uh, Zurich, conducted a pilot study with a group of psychiatric patients and group of uh, quote-unquote normal people, and this became a sensation overnight because of the incredible efficacy, millions of a gram, you know, could change the consciousness so profoundly. So they were now sending samples uh, to different um, universities, research institutes, and individual therapists, and they wanted to know if we find any kind of legitimate use for this in psychiatry. So that event that you're asking about was my, my session. I was, you know, walked in as an atheist and in the morning, and uh, I had such a profound uh, experience that it just completely sent my life, professional life and personal life, in a completely different direction. You walked in an atheist and you walked out a mystic. Yeah, you know, believing, knowing that the mystical experiences are very, very convincing. And they have an ontological reality, is the way we talk about it in fancy language, that they actually have a being. They're not the figment of an imaginal hallucination, as has been thought by the emphatic rational mind, we might say, for centuries, the, going back to the time where the church, for instance, made its deal with science when Copernicus in the 16th century uh, discovered or uncovered the fact uh, in the modern world, which had been known, of course, to people in the Vedas and also in the Greek world, that the sun did not revolve around the earth, but uh, the earth revolved around the sun. Well, this was a tremendous heresy there in 1512 uh, because the church had long taught that the earth was the center of the cosmos and its entire theology and uh, the relationship of the human to God uh, uh, was all pinioned on that. And so when this happened, it took another, oh, probably 200 years before it came into the culture as accepted fact. And in the process, uh, the Italian scientist Bruno was burned at the stake for agreeing with Copernicus. And then the great uh, scientist, of course, uh, and astronomer Galileo was silenced and made to recant his uh, agreeing with Copernicus after he witnessed the moons of Jupiter verifying Copernicus's mathematical calculations and, and theories when he had the chance to observe them through the telescope. And so at that time, we had this major split then between the church and science, as we know it, where the church said, you can go ahead with your empirical observations of the natural world, including the uh, celestial heavens, and make whatever observations you want to make. But the area of the psyche and the inner realm, that's our territory, and do not transgress that. And uh, if you do, there'll be very serious, perhaps terminal consequences for you. So with that great split between observing the material world and making the inner cosmonaut journey, we might say, uh, we didn't really start to breach that again until William James in the early part of the 20th century said, I'm going to extend empiricism 
into the inner realms. And uh, I'm not going to be bound by this particular uh, deal that was made between the church and science. And and throughout the entire 20th century, then, uh, when we go beyond the attempt by Freud to reduce the psychic realm to a kind of mechanistic, scientific uh, uh, interplay between uh, the id and the superego and the ego and so on, we, we get uh, Jung emerging with his uh, um, revelation of the archetypes and uh, things in the collective unconscious. And uh, we then move uh, beyond that into the transpersonal realm where other realms of experience become ontologically validated. They become validated in your work as realities that we can actually perceive and experience as humans. And so with that background now, let's look at uh, this fascination people have with 2012. There are all sorts of theories out there that are, in many cases, very individualistic and homemade, as it were, eccentric, that have nothing to do with the larger, you know, we might call primordial tradition of uh, the mystical understanding of a universal wholeness that extends from the Vedas through the Mesopotamian culture, Egypt, the Greeks, Christian mysticism, uh, you know, Sufi mysticism, and so on. But they're they're, they're sort of postulating any number of things, like invasions from aliens, uh, destruction, uh, end of the world. Uh, uh, but the thing they have in common is that there's an elite kind of postulation here that unless you know the true secret code of what's going to happen, something really bad might happen to you on 2012. You might get left behind. You know, and so our conference here is very, very different than that. It's meant to empower people rather than put them under the thrall of a new priesthood. We're wanting to give people access to what are very earthy, real, grounded experiences. So I'd like you to just now talk about how you yourself are approaching this pilgrimage and this conference and what 2012 means to you with your whole lifetime of research into inner states of consciousness? You know, there's several areas of really major information uh, that is coming out of uh, consciousness research that uh, can be used in uh, in the approach to 2012. And as you mentioned, the, the most common interpretation is that this will be uh, destruction. You know, you can, from uh, uh, Reagan, who was talking about it, Bush, the, the left behind... Uh, people uh, to the movie that's uh, that's now coming out now people uh, who um, are having these uh, these transpersonal experiences who are involved in some kind of intense inner exploration they look at the um, situation that we are facing in the world where it seems like we are actually heading toward a cat- catastrophe you know whether it's nuclear whether it's pollution or any any other of the Seven some uh, scenario doomsday scenarios, and they realize that many of the very dangerous trends um, that that you see in in the world take a very different form in the inner exploration than when you confront uh, the violence, when you confront some of, confront some of the uh, destructive and self-destructive. Uh, Tendencies in your in your unconscious. If you confront uh, some of the aberrant uh, uh, sexual tendencies, the even the satanic realm, and you keep it internalized, that it actually ends up in a transformation 
when you emerge so transformed that you're almost a, a different species. I mean, you, for example, would would not consider violence as, a, as an acceptable uh, way of solving conflicts. You would uh, understand your embeddedness in nature, that there's nothing we can do to nature that wouldn't happen at the same time to us. Uh, there is a tremendous sense of moving from... Uh, the kind of egocentric orientation, you know, me, my family, my country, my my party, my religion, to the kind of sense we are all in it together. We are planetary citizens. People move towards uh, need to be in service in some sense, you know, working for a uh, better world. Uh, so that's one of the insights that uh, some of the things that are happening that are very dangerous um, our projections of something that confronted in a different way as part of the inner journey would actually be steps or stages in a process of uh, transformation. Now, I would like to go to something much more specific and actually share my personal experience. Um, in one of my uh, psychedelic sessions, I suddenly had the experience of the apocalypse. I mean, it just came, you know, in the it's almost like traditional form, the uh, enormous destruction that was both uh, technological sort of wars, uh, you know, rockets, uh, bombs, and so on, but also earthquakes, tidal waves. Pe uh, pestilence and famine. Sickness and, and famine, yeah. Famine, yeah. And the then, four horsemen. And then actually the vision of the four, four horsemen uh, of the apocalypse and then suddenly, out of the blue, I, I had the experience of Plato's cave. You know, when the idea is that we are sitting as if in a cave, where the, the re, real reality, the light is behind us, and we see only the shadows that are projected on the, on, uh, the wall of the cave. And suddenly uh, I understood that this is an archetype that if you're on an inner journey, you encounter at a time when you open up to the possibility that you find, for example, in Hindu um, religion, that our world actually is Maya. It's a kind of a strange uh, illusion that it's really not uh, something that's made of stuff, but it's something that's, that's created by this amazing uh, technology of consciousness. We would say, uh, you know, in modern terms, it's a virtual reality. It's, cre it's uh, consciousness that creates the experience of the of the material world. So, in a sense, mm -hmm. the world, the way I saw it or I believed it was, was dying to me. And at that point, the the uh, archetype of the apocalypse just entered my my consciousness. And actually, there was a kind of a fantastic scene at the end where. There was some kind of uh, theater stage, like in the middle of nowhere, and I saw the different archetypes coming as uh, actors in this cosmic game, and they were kind of bowing, like you know, expecting uh, appreciation of the great job they have done by creating this world. Quite a different uh, understanding of the world that you find in monistic materialistic science, where the idea is that this was all created by bouncing uh, particles without any sort of guiding intelligence, without any sort of artistic uh, um, intention and so on.
a kind of random and impersonal universe uh, in yeah. which we, as Nietzsche said, are floating in a universe that has no particular uh, inherent meaning, and uh, we're rotating uh, around uh, the sun in a, in a space that is cold and indifferent and uh, on a planet that is undistinguished. And can you not feel the cold? Yeah. Uh, this was the uh, way he poetically described the materialistic view of uh, reality as seen through the prism of what you're calling yeah. monistic materialistic science. And that's what led him to say God is dead, meaning the animating spirit of the universe, however we experience it, whether it's called creator or spirit or consciousness or anima mundi, uh, had basically been uh, killed by man, by humankind, ourselves, in order to empower ourselves over and against the mysterious uh, great force of nature itself. You see, the... Um the Mayans, of course, they had very powerful psychedelic uh, materials at their disposal. You know, there was uh, uh, there was the uh, mushroom there, but also the uh, the toad, uh, uh, Bufo called Bufo Marinus. And so, I'm quite convinced that some of these things came really from uh, from powerful psychedelic transpersonal visions. Uh, that was. Uh, like the source of these kinds of experiences, that their prophecy was more related to changes in consciousness than changes in the material world. And so if you, if you look at it from this perspective, what might be happening is that the world, the way we have had it up to this point, is dying and that we are being born into uh, you know, a, a very, very different uh, type of reality with completely different set of values, with completely different strategy of life, with different relationship between people, different relationship to uh, nature and so on. And I have seen it, you know, hundreds of times in individuals going through this transformation. And the question is, you know, can it happen on a large scale and can it happen in a, a reasonable time scale so that do we have enough time, you know, for that? transformation because it's not some kind of fantasy about the future it's already happening to a number of people and that's why we chose to call this conference 2012 now because the a challenge and the invitation of the conference is to create that transformational experience ourselves with a common intentionality and a common attentiveness and respect and appreciation for the, we might say, group ritual and ceremony of inviting in this deeper unveiling that will be taking place. And it's not just a matter of staying within the mental, rational realm uh, so that we receive information from experts and then we have more things to talk about or think about with respect to 2012, but it's accelerating our curiosity into the present moment so that the very event itself, the gathering, will create an energy field that will invite in this kind of level of transformation, that will tune ourselves into a resonance with a living universe through the vehicle of our common intention and shared stories, which is a very traditional way, going back to the very beginnings of humankind, to create that experience. You have uh, 
talked about various animal uh, realms and plant realms as portals that can open us to this larger consciousness. Uh, you talked in the Mayan world about having the mushrooms, which are sometimes referred to in the Mayan world as sacred teaching plants. They're teaching plants because they are portals when ingested under the uh, right circumstances where a dialogue occurs between the plant realm manifestation of consciousness and the animal human realm manifestation. You talked about the toad, the toad as an animal, which actually secretes a certain substance from its back, which when ingested again can uh, or absorbed by the human body creates a dialogic uh, opening uh, in our consciousness where together with the plant realm, together with the animal realm, we can journey, as it were, into a deeper unveiling of reality where our common humanity and our common consciousness beyond just the human realm is revealed. Now, we've talked in these uh, uh, dialogues on the way to 2012 now, on the road to 2012 now, about Barack Obama's articulation in his inaugural address, where he said, as the world becomes smaller, our common humanity is revealed to us. And for this reason, men, women, and children everywhere can celebrate. And so we might take that particular phrase as almost Shakespearean in the sense that Shakespeare concentrated his great work on the human realm. And it was for that reason that uh, Thoreau and uh, Emerson said that the Bhagavad Gita the oldest, we might say, uh, most extensive written record of indigenous mind from the Vedas and in the Vedas, uh, they said the Bhagavad Gita is greater than even our own Shakespeare. And the reason is that in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Veda, there are explorations and descriptions of levels of awareness that show us to be in the midst of a, an interpenetrated universe where consciousness is literally the stuff and substance of which all material manifestation derives. And it is shared by not only animals and plants, but also by the landscape itself, so that all material manifestations are infused at this level with consciousness. And when that unveiling happens by whatever technique, it could be holotropic breathwork, as you and your wife have uh, instituted these last two decades and more. It could be through a plant substance like ergot made into a, uh, a synthesized substance like LSD. It could be uh, through animal totems. It could be through a vision quest. It could be uh, encounter with the landscape and nature. It could be our own inner quest through meditation, or it could be amplified and revealed to us in a conscious gathering as we are coming together to do on May 29 and May 30 in Fort Collins, Colorado. And that's how people have gathered consciously from time immemorial to together with a common and trained intention evoke that deeper logos, that deeper revelation of the universe in the present moment of every one of those gatherings. So this is completely reframing, we might say, the sense that we're moving towards some kind of external event in an external universe that's either going to destroy us or redeem us or uh, anything in between. So this might be an opportunity, Stan, uh, for us to talk about uh, 
these speculations that are now starting to come through uh, with a real compelling voice uh, from scientists, such as the biocentric universe theory, that life itself creates time, space, and the cosmos that uh, has recently appeared in Discover Magazine that uh, caught your attention. Yeah, well, that's fascinating, you know, that it's coming from, uh, if we say, the most hardcore scientific uh, discipline, which is uh, astronomy. Uh, you know, that uh, where the greatest skeptics came from, like uh, like Carl Sagan, or we have in Prague one uh, uh, astronomer called Grigar, they both were leading uh, societies that wanted to exterminate everything that's, uh, that is irrational and flaky and unscientific. And now it is, you know, astronomy that first brought the anthropic principle, showing that at the beginning of the universe, uh, the, uh, the things were so precisely uh, orchestrated that had the, had the various constants been just a little different, the universe could not uh, support life, so that it seems uh, that uh, it almost was created with the, with the purpose of uh, creating life, so that it could uh, observe and experience uh, itself. But this biocentric astronomy goes even further, it is explicitly sort of um, implying consciousness, very much the way... Um, you know the the Hindu religion or the the Buddhist religion or many other mystical systems uh, do. Of course, we have you know we have uh, now um, observations from many other disciplines uh, that actually increasingly converge with both the uh, world mystical tradition and then particularly the the Eastern great great Eastern spiritual philosophies. You know, beginning with quantum relativistic physics, going mm-hmm. to uh, Carl Pribram's uh, theory of uh, the holographic theory of the brain, uh, David Bohm's uh, theory of hollow movement, uh, the uh, Prigozhin, the, the dissipative structures, and of course the last being Erwin Laszlo and his concept of uh, what he called initially the the psi psi world uh, psi field psi, and that he now calls actually the akashic field, what he described as kind of subquantum field in which everything that has ever happened remains holographically recorded so that uh, the human consciousness can get access uh, to it. It's, uh, you know, the most uh, most useful framework for finding some kind of scientific anchoring for the observations that we have made in these various transpersonal states. And that's what's so interesting, I think, about your consciousness research. We can start with the observed phenomena that you have documented now for 50 years, that when people enter what sometimes are called these altered states, or what we could say are contacting a deeper and more profound inner reality that is not a a partial state, but is actually a state of wholeness. It's as if our waking state in our normal rational mind, the one where we feel separate and apart and individuated, and that we're in a universe that is an external universe subject to certain external laws that have nothing to do with our perception 
vision or our inner consciousness, that that's really the consciousness that's fragmented and not holistic. And it's what really dominates uh, most of the cultures in the world today, other than the few indigenous cultures that remain uh, relatively intact, the very few on the planet that still experience themselves as embedded in an alive and conscious universe. So at this point, we can talk about the consciousness research you've done where you have observed time and time again, literally in hundreds and thousands of experiences, where when people access that experience, it's not a figment of their imagination. They actually experience uh, the direct connection of all of life, the interpenetratingness of all of life, what in the Vedas are called Indra's net, and what in Celtic spirituality is called the web of weird, W-Y-R-D, which interestingly enough is an anagram, we might say, uh, for the modern world of being wired, wired into together like a great spider web. So mm -hmm. people have this experience that uh, they are connected intimately and substantively with the animal realm, the plant realm, and the earth itself. So there's not this sense of separation. And it's that kind of consciousness which gives the feeling of peace, tranquility, equanimity, belonging, caring, the impulse to serve, the impulse to uh, cohabit the planet as a responsible citizen, uh, understanding the impact of our human consumption patterns on nature. So we're not acting out of political, ideological, I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm responsible, you're not. There's a sense of something welling up within the person's experience that naturally and organically, we might say, leads them to change perhaps their um, living patterns, their way they relate to consumption, the way they relate to the environment, not to be a, quote, good person or force themselves into it intellectually, but because it just all of a sudden becomes as you experienced when you went into your first LSD session and came out, you the world becomes, uh, in a certain way, uh, an invitation to behave and to experience in a more related and, uh, we might say, organic way. And, and here Very we might... So, yes. Yeah, and here we might uh, just uh, pause for a moment also and say that you mentioned David Bohm. David Bohm talked about the implicate order and the explicate order. And he talked about how at their times when our perceptual apparatus seems to perceive a chaotic world, a random world, uh, just as Nietzsche said, can you not feel the cold? There doesn't seem to be any coherent principle manifest in this universe. We're all alone. The universe is random. It's chaotic. And then we impose some kind of explicate order on it through ideology, religion, um, things or ways of thinking about uh, the world and belief system that create more separation, more conflict, more argument, more competition, more wars, rather than accessing an understanding of reality and ourselves embedded within this great uh, Anamamundi, this great cosmic uh, consciousness that leads to a gentleness, an equanimity, uh, working with others, uh, what we might say in today's lingo, a transpartisan consciousness. And what David Bohm said was that there is, in his experience, what he called an implicate order. There is in the universe 
a basic goodness. Uh, what uh, Einstein asked the question, uh, is the universe benign? And uh, he answered it yes, intuitively, not intellectually and experientially. He, he, he did it experientially and intuitively and not intellectually. And David Bohm the same. But then he said we can access the experience of that also through dialogue. That if, as human beings, we interact with another not by debate, not by discussion, not trying to beat on ourselves like drums and percussion, like I'm right, you're wrong, or give you information and you just simply receive it but don't otherwise interact and become passive and disempowered um, listening to experts, if we can enter into real co-creative dialogue, the implicate order reveals itself in and through us. And that is the magic of coming together in a dialogic gathering with that intention that we as humans in even a conference room or a theater or a hotel lobby could actually come together and create a field that would be an apocalypse in the sense of a revelation of a deeper reality. And we would then feel and experience ourselves as transformed through that gathering. And it's exactly that accessing of the implicate order and of the revelation of the deeper reality that underlies all of our experience that we will be doing together at the gathering 2012 now. I just would like to support what you just described. You know, um, my, my experience with these uh, um, contexts for revelation was really uh, happening on three different levels or three different stages. Uh, the first one was uh, the most radical, which was uh, my psychedelic experience and that the years of research for psychedelic substances. But then we moved to a more subtle form where Christina and I developed uh, what we call holotropic uh, breathwork, where you people access these states by breathing, by music, and certain kind of a, uh, body work. Uh, by the way, that term holotropic is my term. Uh, I very much dislike uh, what you mentioned before that uh, that uh, psych psychiatry is using the term altered states, and I just hold right. these states in a lot of uh, respect to call them altered. It's always uh, associated with veterinarian medicine. You know, you get your pet altered. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's it's like alternative medicine yeah, somehow. It's like, yeah, like the idea that there's a correct way of experiencing yourself in the world, and and when yeah. these states come, it's a distortion. It's a kind of a some kind of bastardized, you know, uh, uh, irrelevant. Uh, version uh, of that. So anyway, yeah, ra rather than a return to wholeness, which is what it really is. So talk about the word holotropic and what it means. It's moving toward wholeness. It's, it's, this is what the word implies. So we spent now years, you know, working uh, in workshops and we have a training for for facilitators. By the way, people can check it on uh, our website if they're interested, holotropic.com. But then Christina and I had another uh, experience, uh, which was also very powerful. We organized eight large uh, international transpersonal conferences, where basically people representing, uh, you know, different scientific disciplines of the of the new paradigm, but also spiritual teachers, uh, artists, uh, you know, even, even uh, astronomers and so on, were getting together. And, uh, you know, there were certainly lectures, but there was also a lot of dialogue happening, and it created uh, something like a field where a lot of unusual things started happening, and people 
got really glimpses of this mystical vision and sense of a new new uh, connection. So Christine and I uh, organized uh, eight of them, but they have been 16 of these conferences. And next year there will be one in, in Moscow, which, you know, now can bring also people from Eastern Europe, which we missed until the Prague conference uh, in uh, the early 90s. We, we, this was just part of the world that could meet in this world. Now we can include the the Eastern Europeans. So I, we have had very powerful experiences with non-drug methods of, uh, of um, accessing these states. You know, the holotropic breathwork is uh, available to everybody who is, who is interested. And, of course, the conferences are... And indeed, that's exactly what I meant and wanted to really call attention to when we use David Bohm's languaging of an implicate order accessible through dialogue as an example of these kinds of conferences. I attended three of those eight that you organized, one in Killarney, Ireland, another in Eugene, Oregon, and of course the Joseph Campbell Centenary in Palm Springs in 2004. And it is my experience that the heart of those kinds of conferences was not like some kind of intellectual experience where one would go to, let's say, a scientific conference and there would be experts on the stage who would all be lined up in parallel to each other side by side and would sequentially read a paper giving information about experiments that they had conducted, quote, objectively on the external world and provide information to fellow scientists in that way. That's really almost the extreme case of the monomaterialistic approach to a gathering where it's just a, a transmission one way of information. And there, there could be questions and answers, but the question and answers were really designed to elicit further information, not really often to contribute or enter into an open-ended dialogue where the result would be the appearance of new information between the questioner and the expert on the stage uh, almost never happens in those kinds of situations. It's really a matter of a body of knowledge that the expert has of what the Hindus call avidya, meaning absence of wisdom. Ah, meaning absence and vidya, meaning wisdom. So when you're just trapped in the realm of knowledge, your knowledge is like external reality. It's not the living, intuitive depth experience of what's really fundamentally real at the level of what Bohm called the implicate order. And so the magic of the conferences that I attended that were held by the ITA, the International Transpersonal Association, were, were those moments of shared stories where either with the people on the dais who were presenting or in the interstices of coffee and lunch and afterwards in the evening, people integrated the information that was being shared in ways that were open-ended because of the kind of people that were magnetized and attracted to those conferences. So here what I have seen is an evolution of conferences over the years, whereas more and more people become aware that we ourselves evoke the deeper reality from consciousness, uh, from the 
uh, we might say the stuff and substance of, of the universe itself, let's call it consciousness, that w- as we become aware that we evoke that through our own level of consciousness and openness and perception, then we come to these gatherings with a more open and uh, we might say subtle, to use your words, understanding that our deep appreciative listening and respectful interaction will evoke something beyond what any of the presenters or any of the participants uh, had in their awareness uh, before they came to the conference. And so you go away with a transformed, vital perspective rather than just simply an accumulation of books in your bag or papers or information. This is a very powerful alternative to this idea of, you know, catastrophic destruction of the world in a material sense to the idea that uh, we are approaching some kind of a powerful, powerful event in consciousness, some powerful transformation, which ultimately will uh, also uh, change radically, you know, what we now see as material uh, reality. And there is a there is an image uh, in Mayan uh, cosmology that particularly interested me. And this is uh, the story of from Popol Vuh of the uh, hero twins, um, and uh, a, a sort of an evil, uh, you know, archetype emerges there. Uh, a bird that's called uh, Seven Mako, which is a kind of a, a type of a of a parrot, and they basically describe him as this um, very kind of a brutal uh, ruler, ignorant kind of brutal ruler, and. Uh, they have to kill the bird before um, the world returns to the true uh, ruler, Hunahpu. And they specifically describe that they deprive him of his uh, teeth and of his riches and of his power. Now, which, if you look at this, those are the evil of today's world, the incredible violence, uh, the the kind of addiction, you know, to uh, material thing, pursuit of of power and kind of a linear pursuit of riches uh, that's not associated with really increasing the quality in life. So that bird had to be killed somehow before, in a sense, the world could be uh, created in its in its true form. So that the the old world was really uh, inauthentic was kind of going uh, going uh, astray so the question is you know what would the what would that transformation look like um, I have talked in my books quite a bit about uh, the death rebirth experience and the connection deep connection that we found to the stages of biological birth when people were going through this death rebirth experience uh, when the, when uh, the inner journey reached a certain level suddenly four clusters of experiences started emerging, you know, specific emotions, specific uh, physical feelings, specific uh, symbols, symbolic images, and so on. And people themselves linked it to the stages of birth. I talk about them as basic perinatal matrices, the first being sort of embedded in the in the wo- uh, womb, you know, hopefully good womb. Then the uh, the second matrix were the the uterus starts contracting. We lose the connection to the to the maternal matrix, and the system is kind of claustrophobic, all contained. 
Then the third matrix is when the cervix opens and there is a struggle through the birth canal and then finally the emerging. And uh, then I realized, you know, this is a very universal archetypal pattern that you can that you can apply to a uh, number of situations from uh, uh, the chicken embryo, you know, in the in um, uh, the the egg to uh, changes in society. You know, the the primordial uh, harmonious society, and then the development of some kind of a totalitarian regime that creates a kind of a no-exit claustrophobic uh, situation, then the uh, revolutionary impulse that comes to struggle to free oneself, and then sort of emerging, you know, and uh, as you find it in the language of revo- revolutions, being able to breathe again. Um, so people who went through this uh, death-rebirth process, in a sense, were um, completing their process of birth. The, the lesson from that was that we all were born anatomically. We left the maternal body, but we haven't really caught up with it emotionally. We still carry within ourselves the memory of being uh, being confined or being uh, restricted. And depending how close that memory is to our surface, it gives us a sense of dissatisfaction with ourselves, with the world, and a sense that we have to move somewhere uh, into the future where things will be better. Like the, the fetus who is stuck in the birth canal doesn't feel great, but has a sense that there is a, in the third matrix, that there is a way, way uh, out, that there's sort of a, a head lies something better. And that creates that kind of psychology that dominates really the industrial civilization, you know, unlimited growth. The bigger, the better. If we can double and triple you know, the gross national product, if we can increase the uh, production and uh, so on, that's uh, that's going to be uh, great. We're all going to be f- feeling wonderful. And, of course, what happens is that uh, the, the countries that were able to achieve this actually have uh, ultimately more uh, alcoholism, more divorce, more violence than the, than the native cultures that we're living on a sustainable, you know, a very simple, very simple uh, level. So I, I think that what, uh, what is really meant and by this Mayan prophecy is the death of the old values, the death of the old institution, death of the old psychology, and emerging into the world that would be governed by a completely different system of values where people will be able to uh, solve problems collectively. They will be able to have a sense of uh, community that it will overcome that sense of alienation, which is so so characteristic for for uh, modern society. You know, I think we don't have to go very far to find in our um, modern world the uh, the representations of the seven Mako of this sort of ignorant, uh, brutal leader who pursues these egotistic uh, uh, values. And I think that's exactly the time that we're entering now is to go beyond that. And there are all sorts of indications here that are extraordinarily positive, even as and perhaps even confirmed by 
our economic disintegration and the economic crisis is symbolic and real at the same time. It is the disintegration of the old ways that actually are revealed now not to have had any real substance to them. The assets called derivatives are revealed to be simply paper fictions of the imagination that have caused enormous dislocation and suffering to people all over the world because they were fantasies uh, that were put on the uh, natural world in a way that uh, had no real connection or groundedness. And it was like the intellect run rampant greed run rampant, uh, what's come to be known as the second gilded age in America gone global. And I think, Stan, when you talk about the time is coming as we let go of old forms that no longer serve, that are revealing themselves, this is part of the apocalypse. The The first stage of the apocalypse of the revelation is the revelation of the insubstantiality and the non-sustainability of a particular way of understanding reality. So there is destruction there. There is a self-destruction, a falling away, a falling apart heart. And our proper response is not to hang on fearfully or to go into contraction. Just as Paul Krugman has said, the Nobel Prize winning economist, in times of economic recession, the worst thing you can do is to pull back and not consume at all and contract into fear because that creates the self-fulfilling prophecy of a downward spiral. What you need to do is establish a kind of clear-headed, commonsensical a relationship to your external economic reality and continue to interact economically with a society, but with discernment of what is really valuable and what you really need and so on, so that gradually the economy can reshape itself around renewable energy, around uh, consumption patterns and uh, spending patterns and credit card patterns that are actually in balance with the income and the fair exchange that you're making with the world. And so even that, when we look at our economic world, is an example of the unveiling, which could lead to a whole different way of working together, as you say, to solve problems collectively. And that, to me, is part of the phenomenon of the election of Barack Obama, which has been welcomed. Very much so, yeah. I was just thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, but yes, we can. Together, the white people, brown people, red people, yellow people, you know, abled people, disabled people, gay people, straight people, people of all nations, together we can. And so uh, I go back then uh, to your talking about seven makah. I think that's very interesting, the great uh, Mayan story, the creation story, if you will, in the Popol Vuh, uh, the great text of the Mayans, where it's the hero twins who actually uh, kill uh, seven Macaw. And so uh, the hero twins implies right there a collaboration, a collective solution to a problem. It's the metaphor for working together. It's not a single hero that rides in to save the day. And then if you think about seven Macaw as this parrot-like bird, you think of those leaders, so-called, in our political landscape in the last few decades who have been literally screeching uh, with their supporters like parrots can do and drowning out all other, you know, voices or views and at the same time demanding of their followers and of the general citizenry that we parrot back to them 
the seven Macaw leaders, you know, their particular kind of screeched uh, ideology. So there's a tremendous metaphor here about seven That's Macaw. A great image. Yeah. Wonderful image. Being like a parrot image and very, very relevant contemporarily about how the collective hero's journey of the 20th century is different than the alone modern consciousness hero's journey of Galahad as described by Joseph Campbell in that era of King Arthur's time in Western history. But one other thing I want to say before we come to a conclusion, Stan, is that you talked about this restlessness that we all feel that keeps leading us further and further on the journey. And in Buddhist terms, of course, it's called the first noble truth, which is suffering, which instead of being a bad thing is reframed as we might say a kind of restless discomfort that keeps us from just staying stuck in whatever mode that we're in, keeps us inquisitive, keeps us curious about the world. And in a recent dialogue with Joseph M. Marshall III, uh, the Lakota historian, uh, he talked in his book, Keep Going, about how we can see this in the behavior of a baby, where the baby begins first to move and crawl, but then sits up to have a greater view and then eventually stands up to have even a greater view than that and and then starts walking one step ahead of the other. So we have hardwired into our experiences as humans this this impulse, this evolutionary impulse to go on a pilgrimage, to take a journey, both outer and inner, to put one step ahead of the other as we're doing in these dialogues, metaphorically as we move toward uh, this conference uh, that we are orchestrating uh, in response to the same kind of yearning internationally that Barack Obama responded to uh, by running for office and uh, by being elected. He elected out of that yearning for a higher, more integral reality, and he gave back in his inaugural address uh, an articulation of that vision. And that's the kind of thing, very practical, very grounded, but also very visionary that we will all be doing together at this gathering on May 29 and 30. So for all the things that you've done, Stan, in your life and all of these dialogues we've had together and the dialogues yet to come, and particularly at this conference, I really want to honor and and thank you and let you make a kind of summary statement here of what you're anticipating as we come into this gathering and, and make your own personal invitation to our listeners to join us. Uh, I'm excited about both hearing the individual presentations, but then particularly the interaction, because that's where new things uh, emerge, you know, when people coming from different backgrounds, from uh, different orientations can uh, have a kind of an open-minded uh, discussion. It turns out to be very, very creative and very fertile. So I'm looking forward to that meeting. The context is great. I mean, you know, you can't have a much better setting. Beauty of Colorado is just unbelievable, you yeah. And so one of the things I'll do then in concluding is say that I'm also very aware as we do these pilgrimage dialogues more and more that these dialogues are being evoked from all the participants, myself and yourself in this particular example, Stan, and what I have articulated, what you have articulated is coming out of this real international yearning 
from many of the listeners who will listen to this dialogue either in the proximate time frame or maybe years from now will have participated in evoking not only what we're sharing here together in terms of shared stories and sudden insights like the metaphor of Seven McCall being a parrot and people parroting back in a disempowered way to leaders what they want to hear or teachers or whatnot, but really an empowering interaction that the hero twins by collaboration make possible. That's the kind of metaphor, the kind of archetype that we will be enacting here very, very much based on and grounded in every single participant who's listening or will listen to these dialogues and every single person who will show up and be part of this gathering. It's the people who will have the opportunity to not only evoke from presenters, which is only one aspect of the conference, but also to share together during a very extended lunch hour their own stories in more intimate small groups that will allow the articulation in our final dialogues, which will be open to the entire conference to come to fruition of the entire gathering. So with that, I'd like to just once again thank Stan Groff for his participation, not only in this dialogue, but our many, many year friendship here. Stan, it's always a deep, deep pleasure to have these times together. Thank you very much for uh, all the work you have done over the years to bring these new ideas to open-minded audiences, very special audiences. I think it's a kind of a collective midwifing here. All of us, when we come together like this, are like the hero twins. You and I together and the listeners and both of us together, all of this kind of collaboration is becoming more and more, I think, something that people are aware that we can do together. And so with that, I just want to say thank you, a profound gratitude to all of the people all over the world that are awakening to this yearning and promoting my awakening, Stan's awakening, our collective awakening, Barack Obama's awakening, and to invite you to be with us either at the conference, if that's physically possible for you. And if that is possible, you can go to the website, www.unveiling2012.org. That's unveiling2012.org for more information and to register. And if you can't be physically present, we extend this very, very warm invitation to continue this dialogue as we together continue on Living Dialogues. 2012 Now, Empowering the Transformation, a uniquely innovative, interactive, and affordable gathering in this time of global uncertainty, will take place Friday night and all day Saturday, May 29 and 30, at the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts in Fort Collins. Beyond just information to practical tools for change and direct experience of participating in the ongoing transformation of our times, now is the time and the opportunity to synchronize consciousness with the evolutionary pulse of the cosmos. Join world-renowned speakers as we explore and experience together the transformative dynamics necessary for a successful transit from now through the year 2012 and beyond. Featuring Stanislav Groff, Richard Tarnas, John Major Jenkins, Saban Fusome, Duncan Campbell, William Henry, Robert Sittler, and Christine Page, more information available on the website www.unveiling2012.org. See you then. And visit us on my website, 
livingdialogues.com. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S dot com. And if you'd like to listen freely to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers listed on mylivingdialogues.com website, once you have entered your subscription to the Living Dialogues podcast here on Personal Life Media, future Living Dialogues will automatically be downloaded to your computer on a weekly basis. Or simply browse through the list of programs here whenever you like, download them, or listen to them on your computer. Thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program. All the very best. And stay tuned now after the music for some very interesting opportunities available to you as a listener to Living Dialogues. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.